8.26 Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Now because this section here begins with a discourse about the Holy Spirit and his involvement in our prayer life, we're going to engage this because it leads up to what follows in verses 28 through 30. This passage talks about our weakness or our infirmities. It says that we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know how to pray in such a way that we are praying in agreement with the mind of the Spirit. We might think that we agree with the Spirit. We might think we know what's good and what's right. But Scripture assures us that when we pray according to the will of God, that He answers and that He gives and that He will not deny a request that agrees with His will. So here's us struggling through life in many ways, even struggling through prayer. Does anyone ever struggle with prayer? I know a lot of people do in a group setting. Oh no, everybody's watching me. I, I, I don't know what I, sh I should say because I'm going to sound silly when I pray. And probably some of us even struggle with that a little bit in our prayer closet or individually or with our families. And yet, the Holy Spirit actually initiates and draws us to pray. So we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but listen to this. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. Literally, this word intercedes for us means he, he heaves along with us. You imagine trying to move something very, very heavy. And, you know, you're, you're pushed against it with your shoulders, like, getting a car out of the out of the snowbank okay one person is heaving it's it's not going anywhere the tires are spinning the more weight you get be behind that the more likely you are to move it but here we have the idea of the holy spirit getting behind us and giving that final push um, bringing our requests before the lord not only that but he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There are examples in Scripture of people praying without words. Abraham was known to pray without words, and Hannah in the temple. That ungodly or that worldly priest, Eli, saw this woman, Hannah, in the temple. And 
her lips were moving, but there were no words coming out. The first thing Eli thought was that she was drunk. She was praying. And the spirit was interceding with her spirit, with groanings too, too deep for words. Now this is all tied in to the sovereignty of God. And this is, and I'm going to explain this as we go through this. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When you pray, and even if you aren't praying, God is searching your heart. He knows every element of doubt. He knows every element of fear. He knows every element of unbelief that you wrestle with in your weakness. He knows all of that. However, if the Holy Spirit lives within you, and if your standing before God is sure and secure because of what Christ has done, dying for your sins, raising again for your justification, interceding for you now at the right hand of the Father. If all of those things are in place, the Holy Spirit, knowing your infirmities, knowing all of the static of sin and of weakness, and you know, knowing of the wretchedness that still clings to us and the sin that sometimes clings to us, the Holy Spirit knows our heart and he also knows the Spirit knows the mind of God because he is God. What the Holy Spirit does is he brings us together. And he prays along with our new nature. He prays in a way that connects directly with God. And he prays, he intercedes, he pushes behind in accordance with the will of God. He's asking on our behalf in a way that God cannot refuse. It doesn't mean that everything that we ask will always be answered. But when the Holy Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God, that will indeed be answered. There is no way that that will not be answered. And it is a God thing. It is God who is doing this. When God initiates the prayer, God answers the prayer. But now that doesn't mean that we don't, on our own, decide I'm going to pray and bow our heads and pray. But prayer that moves God is prayer that is started by God. Let's uh, continue. That, that sort of is almost unrelated, but it leads into what we're going to be focusing on. And that is this golden chain, or this unbreakable chain of redemption. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. 
We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Look back over your life over the past week. That might be my phone. I don't Look back over the past week and I'm sure that you can probably find things that at least to your observation are not working together for good. In fact, you can look back and probably find some pretty bad things the further you go back. And maybe right now, even getting to this service, your mind was reeling and struggling with hurts. With hurts and with bitterness. With frustration. With physical pain. And it certainly does not seem to be working together for good. But the promise is here that all things work together for good. We need to ask ourselves, what are all things? What is meant by all things? And also, what is meant by good? How are we going to define these things? If we look at all of the things that we've just imagined in our minds, there might not be a lot of good in those things that we can see. So what we need to do and what we're being challenged to do here is to look at things from a heavenly, from a God perspective. From the perspective of our standing in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a new creature. If you are in the Spirit, you are not in the flesh. And therefore, even though your flesh may sin, because you are not living in the flesh and you are not bound by the flesh, you can still please God, not because of your own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ in you, working in you, and His Spirit working in you. When we take a step back, and let's read a little further here just to see this. For all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, brothers. So, Let's, let's look at the question first of all. What are all things? All things are all things. All things are the, the difficult parts of our lives, the testing parts of our lives. And even though God does not initiate or cause sin, He permits sin. And he permits rebellion for his own purpose, that he can also chasten, that he can discipline, that he can move us forward. So all things mean all things. There's another sense of the all things that work together for good. And if we read further, we see what these all things are. Listen to this. For those he foreknew, 
He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of those things work together for good. Foreknowledge, whom he foreknew, we'll get to what that is in a moment, but whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. All of those things work together for good to those who love God, and to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I said we ought to also find out what is meant by working together for good. What is the good that we're looking at here? And by extension, what is the purpose that God has? Well, we don't have to look far at all. It's right here. It's right here in front of us. Verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The good that God has in mind, the purpose that God has in mind, is that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. The passage we read in First Peter this morning, and the whole scope of Scripture, the reason why we make disciples, is that we would become like Jesus. When the Bible speaks of perfection or maturity, it speaks of growing up into Christ. In Romans chapter 8, what, or the, the, uh, the extended study that we had last week, we saw that there is this adoption of sons. We are given the spirit of adoption, but there is a coming adoption of sons where the sons of God are revealed, where our bodies are redeemed and are resurrected, and where Christ is revealed, everything is moving toward this point when we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And yet even now, in this imperfect state, in this struggling state, where we have not yet resisted to the point of death, God is continually um, perfecting his image in us. He is continually moving us into the glory of Christ through patient discipline and through teaching and through um, all of the good things that a loving father does. So God's purpose, and I know that God, you know, God has... His purpose can be defined in, in other ways and in a broader sense. But his ultimate purpose in the creation of man and in our worship is that we would be like Jesus, that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. This, knowing that this is God's goal, that this is God's purpose, if we really embrace this, what would it do to the way we live our lives? Uh, how would we consciously change our lives? Will we glibly quote, all things work together for good to those who love God? That means I basically do what I want and let God work it all out? Or would we say, 
if God, if God's desire is for me to be conformed to the image of His Son, then I ought to be moving toward that in every way I can by listening to Him and obeying Him and walking in the grace that He's given me, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit that is within me. You see, that's a very motivating thing to know the purpose that God has for us. The song that we sang, it's all about you. Well, in a sense, it's all about Jesus, but also it's all about us being like Jesus. That is where this is all going. Now let's look at this, these elements in this chain here. And it is an unbreakable chain because all of these things belong together. And if you have one element, if you have one link of these chain, it is eternally bound to all the other links. There is no way to separate one from the other. And it says here, for those whom he foreknew, there's a first link. Oh, I missed, I missed something significant here. In, in verse, uh, verse 28, the last part of the verse, it says, for those who are called according to his purpose. I've already given a general call to everyone who is thirsty to come drink of the water of life. That's the gospel. That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through him. And that his death and his resurrection have conquered and removed sin to all who believe in this and trust in him. But there is another aspect of this call that we have to consider that not everyone who is called in the sense of a general invitation will enter into heaven. There's no promise anywhere that everyone would be saved. So if the same call that's going out to all is a call that's meant here, then all things are going to work together for everyone, that everyone then will end up being justified. And you read to the end of the Bible and you find not everyone is justified. There is this place called the lake of fire that is full of people who have not, who are not justified. And have, have never come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But th these things work together for a specific group of people, for those who are called. Those who are called in a way that is effective that cannot be denied, that cannot be resisted. If God has saved you, it is not because of your desire to be saved. It is because of his desire to save you and his plan to save you in spite of who you are, not because of who you are, not because of your zeal in seeking after God, because you have no zeal to seek God unless he has called you, unless he has called you and drawn you with cords of love, drawn you to himself. All right, now let's go to the foreknowledge. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. One way that this foreknowledge is explained in many pulpits is that God knew ahead of time who would choose of their own free will to be saved. And on the basis of that foreknowledge, he chose people. Therefore, the deciding factor here really is not the sovereign choice of God, but the choice of man, whether to accept or reject the offer of salvation. Now, if we just go carefully through this text, we're going to see that is not what it means. It can't, it can't mean that. So let's just start, first of all, by defining what it means. If you were listening last week, this will be review for you, but what does it mean that whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son? Well, this is a personal knowledge. It is a knowledge, it is not saying that for those whom he knew in advance what they were going to do. It's not a knowledge of events. It's not a knowledge of happens. It's a knowledge of intimacy. Adam knew his wife. What happened when Adam knew his wife? She became pregnant and they had a child. That knowledge is expressed physically in the, the intimate knowledge of a man and a woman in love conceiving a child. And that same word when the when the Greek when the Jews translated the New Testament into Greek in the version called the Septuagint, they um, they translated that word in Genesis and many other places where it comes they, they use the same the same word that is used as the Greek word that is used here in the New Testament. Okay, so there is a continuity in this, what, what knowledge actually means. So those whom he intentionally loved and knew, not the things that they would do, but knew. Remember, God is outside of time. For me to know, for him to know me, before the world was created does not mean that I had to exist before the world was created. People make that mistake and they somehow think, well, then, then I must have existed way back then. No, God is not bound by time in any sense. He knew us because in his mind and in his um, omniscience, it is as if we were already created and he already knew us. So that is what foreknowledge actually means here. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So those people whom he knew ahead of time, he also had this plan to bring them from people dead in their trespasses and sins, rebels against God, without 
any fear of God before their eyes. To bring us all the way to a place where we are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And this was a specific goal of his. In no way does God ever indicate that he intends to bring every human being to this place. But those whom he called, those whom he foreknew. Now I know this is, this is, invariably this is going to make some people nervous and it made me nervous for a long time but let's just let's just tough this out he doesn't he he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers this speaks of our shared inheritance with Christ Jesus is the firstborn in one sense from the dead. He's the first person to be raised again incorruptible. And we are going to be raised incorruptible if we are indeed foreknown and called and predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So this is part of God's purpose. Christ will be glorified and then we will be glorified with him. He having the the right hand position with the Father, but all of us being brought into that fellowship and that unity with God. The way that uh, John Jesus prays in John 17 that, that uh, we would be one even as he and the Father are one and that we would be in them and they would be in us and we would all be one. Not in the sense that we're God, but in the sense that we are adopted and brought into this position of sonship. So we got foreknowledge, and you have predestination. And the destination that God has is to bring us all into this place. And, you know, this predestination, it involves... Um, many aspects of our lives. In the book of Acts chapter 17 it says that God has already planned out the habitations where people will live for everyone. Wait a minute, I thought I made that decision. I thought that well, you did make that that, that decision and yet this is all in keeping with the sovereign decree of God. In uh, Ephesians chapter 1, we read about more about the, what, what this predestination is. Verse 11, Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, talking about the apostles. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
Our inheritance is to be one with Christ. Our inheritance is to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is what we are destined for as believers. Now we get this recurrence of the calling. And those whom he predestined, he also called. You understand, if we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, if we're predestined to, to receive the inheritance of our salvation, that this is not a universal call. It's so clear that this call, it's, it's not the same call that goes out to everyone. It is a specific call, an effective call that will not fail. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. How is, how is one justified before God? You remember? Through faith. Romans 5, 1. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in all of these things that we've read so far, where do you see human will and human desire for whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and whom he predestined, he also called, and whom he called, he also justified. The faith that is necessary for justification, the faith that we willingly place in the Lord Jesus Christ. That faith is there because of the calling. That faith is there because of the predestination. That faith is there because God has a specific purpose to truly save all for whom he died. And whom he justified, he also glorified. What does it mean to be glorified? In one sense, Adam was glorified when he was created because he was the image of God without fault, without sin, and perfect. The glorified Christ, that Jesus in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father. I don't know if you realize this, but not only is he fully God, he is also glorified as a man. He did not relinquish his identity as a man when he ascended to heaven. And when he returns to reign on this earth, he's going to reign as God but he is also going to reign as man, as the second Adam. So this glory, as far as God is concerned, in his eternal perspective, 
It is already accomplished. There is no way to interpose and to change anything that God has set in place. All right. Here come the objections. Why preach the gospel? Why preach if God has it all figured out? Why pray? Why pray that anyone would be saved if God has it all figured out? Well, we'll get to that in detail in Romans chapter 10. But the means by which God brings people to life, the means by which God calls, the means by which he draws people in his everlasting love, in his uh, foreknowledge, in his predestination, the means is the preaching of the word of God. And he also invites us and calls us to pray for all men everywhere that they would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But this salvation does not happen with the pro without the proclamation of God's word. We, we learn in Romans chapter 1 that we are not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And when that word of God goes forth to someone whom God has called and foreknown and predestined, that word does its regenerating work and brings that person into a position of faith, of trust in the God who planned to save them. But what about all of those people whom God didn't call? Well, I don't know, and you don't know, whom God did and did not call. But it is eminently clear that the salvation is of God. It is not conditional upon man. And I happen to think that God will be very generous in his calling, that there will be many, many people saved and drawn to him. It might not seem to us that way. But they will not hear without a preacher. You know, we would save ourselves so much anguish if we truly understood the sovereignty of God. That he really does have a sovereign decree and he does work all things after the counsel of his will and that what we do in our free will so-called can never thwart the free will of God that God will save all whom he intends to save and will lose none Jesus even prayed to the Father for all that would hear the message of the gospel preach that he would lose none of them and he said it says in John all that the Father has given me will come to me the Father has already given to the Son those who will come this need not this this knowledge that God is sovereign in salvation it need not be a problem for us it need not be a hurdle if we understand that God is wise enough 
and just and merciful to save whom he wills and accomplish perfect salvation for them from beginning to end. And when you hear the gospel in a meeting like this and you hear that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and the Holy Spirit impresses upon you Christ died for my sins according to the scriptures and was buried for my sins according to the scriptures and raised again on the third day according to the scriptures and when the when the, the Spirit of God brings you into His Word in that way, that you know that it's about you, and He draws you, you will come. Many people come to a false gospel. They come to a gospel that says, your life is pretty empty and shallow right now, isn't it? Well, Jesus can make your life a lot less empty and shallow. And all you have to do is decide right now to believe in him. And he will come in, forgive all your sins, and give you a new life. Now, there's nothing... There's nothing that is completely untrue in that. My life is a lot less empty and shallow than it was in the four brief years before I, I came to know Jesus. <laughs> but uh, there is indeed fulfillment. But the gospel really is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the knowledge that when we sin against God, that that is still sin, and it is still an offense to God, and that we need to come to, to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance. The gospel doesn't leave any room for boasting. It doesn't leave any room for saying, the Lord saw something in me. Or even the Lord knew that someday I would decide to follow him. No, the Lord knew me and he saved me anyway. And he drew me to himself anyway. I was completely undeserving. And I'm not going to be boasting about being one of God's elect because I know that I had nothing to do with it. And I'm also not going to be making the judgment of who's elect or who's chosen and who's not because I have nothing to do with that either. My sole responsibility is to live for him, to bring glory to him, and live in obedience to him, bringing this good news that Christ Jesus died to save sinners. And whoever comes, that is God's doing. Well, to close, I'll just read the rest. What shall we then say to these things besides hallelujah? Besides thank you, Lord. 
or perhaps crying out to God for mercy because we know that we are outside of this security. You're hearing this and says, that's not me. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I belong. I'm not sure if I'm one of those who are foreknown. And if the gospel, if the, if the, if the good news of forgiveness of sins and redemption in Jesus Christ and eternal life, if that's getting through to you today, your hope is not lost. I believe he's calling you. I believe he's drawing you. But what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If we could really understand that line, it is God who justifies. If we really got a hold of that one, <laughs> it would kill our pride. It would keep us completely dependent upon God. It would kill uh, all of the, the, the selfishness in us. And we would live in perpetual gratitude to the one who made us right with God. It is God who justified, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. I don't know who's going to win the Super Bowl, and I don't care, but I know that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that amazing? I understand that when we come to Christ, especially in those early days, I was, as I said, I was four. All I knew was that Jesus loved me, Jesus died for me, and that because of my sin, I was separated from God, and that through faith in Jesus Christ, my sins would be forgiven. And I would have everlasting life. I didn't know all this stuff about election and calling and predestination and all of that stuff. But I do know this, God called me. And even though in my mind at that time, it was a decision, it was an act of faith. It's taken me a while to understand that God initiated that in me. 
that God started that whole process. I didn't. I was as lost as a little four-year-old as, as anybody else. It was important to go through this because when we get into some finer points of God choosing and of God um, being sovereign over, for example, choosing Jacob over Esau and figuratively making one vessel for honor and one for dishonor. Those can be hard things to receive if our understanding of God's sovereignty is weak. So I trust that this will lead us into that. We're going to now um, have our communion celebration and I'll invite the elders. I think Kevin's coming and I'm not sure where Kelly is. Uh, Clay will help, I guess. <laughs>